Hello and welcome to The Abundant Edge, the podcast that explores the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great guest for you lined up today. Many of you probably know Paul Wheaton already as the founder of permiesandrichsoil.com or from his TED Talk on how to save energy by heating your home in alternative ways. He's a giant who always wears overalls and is being called the Duke of Permaculture by Jeff Lawton, the bad boy of permaculture, and has a lot of other nicknames as well. Now, he started out as a software engineer, best known for working on the ground systems for the spacecraft that take pictures for Google Earth. He's currently the largest voice for permaculture in the world, with the forums on permies.com attracting thousands of visitors every single day. We get into a ton of great topics in this interview, including rocket mass heaters, a ton of creative ways to save energy from heating your home, and some of his more controversial advice on how to set up a profitable permaculture farm. Now a quick disclaimer before we get started. My internet connection here in rural Guatemala still is not the best, so there might be a few times in the interview where the quality falls off, there's a little bit of distortion, but I promise you if you keep listening, there won't be any problems with understanding what he's trying to say. So stick with me, bear with me while I get my equipment and my connection fixed up a little bit here, and let's get started. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for being with me here today. How are you doing? Hey, I've got a cold. I plan on coughing through this. All right. There's no way I'm going to edit that out, so let's keep doing it. (laughs) Jumping right in. You have developed a very robust reputation in both the natural building and permaculture communities for some bold ideas that have challenged what many of us are taught about energy saving, gardening, indoor heating, and more. What have been your most important experiments so far? My most important experiments. <clears throat> you know, I, this is going to sound like probably the dumbest experiment from the, from the world of, a, of natural building, permaculture, and all the other things. And I did something a few years ago. I happened to be in a scenario where I had electric heat, and I had a really hard time convincing people of how heat works. And I, I did a, a, what I think was a ridiculously simple thing, and I've made videos of it and, and all kinds of articles and charts and proof, and, and I called the article how I cut 87% off of my electric heat bill, and the thing, it, it, the thing that makes it so important is that I can't get anybody to believe it. <laughs> and it's like it's such a simple thing. In fact, the knowledge that it is true sits in your head right now. And in all the people who don't believe it, it's the knowledge that it's true is already in their head. And so let me, let me turn the tables on you for just a second. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Why is an incandescent light inefficient? Why is it inefficient? Because it converts so, so much of its energy into heat. Into the heat, you don't say. Into the heat, really. And now there are three kinds of heat. Do you know the three kinds of heat? Yeah, convection, um, conduction, and uh, I always forget the third C. Radiant. 
What's the one? Radiant. 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 It's, yes. it's, that, it's that C that is missing the bottom half. <laughs> That's what it was. I was thinking of the wrong letter. Yes, radiation. Okay. So the thing is, is that convective heat is the least efficient form of heat, but it's also the kind of heat that most American homes use. Right. Heat all the air in the house and, and hope that it gets to some of the people. And then the light bulb uses radiant heat, which is a pretty efficient form of heat. And if you use it really in a very smart fashion, you'll heat people more than you'll heat all the space in your home that no one's currently occupying. Sure. It takes right? a little bit of time. You've got to kind of audit where you're spending most of the time in your home so that you can direct that, that heat to where you're going to be, right? Sure. Absolutely. Now... And interest, now, of course, you move the light close to you. You have it directed, you know, uh, more of a directional light bulb than a general lighting kind of a thing. And you direct it at people, um, things of that nature. But the, but the bottom line is, is that even if you're absolutely terrible at doing any of that, uh, for whatever reason, then the amount of heat in your home, like if you're using electric heat, it's like uh, uh, if it's the middle of winter, let's say it's 20 degrees outside, and um, uh, you've got baseboard heats going. If you turn on 40 light bulbs in your house, and they don't add up to the amount of electricity being used by your baseboard heat, which, by the way, is going to be warm, then you're still going to be, like, like the amount of time that the, the, the baseboard heat comes on now is going to be a lot less because of all the heat given off by those light bulbs. The thermostat isn't going to trip as much. It's, right. it's almost, you know, if, if you're using the light bulbs, if all the light bulbs are behind some sort of block, then the amount of heat that they contribute to the space is going to be precisely the same. But if you allow them to do the radiant heat thing, then the thermostat will be set for 72 and and you're going to be like way too warm because of all the lights that are on and they're putting their radiant heat on you. So you'll naturally turn the thermostat down. You'll be, and if you get really smart about this, and this is exactly what I demonstrated in this thing, if you're really smart about this, you can cut your electric heat bill by 87%. 87% isn't even a legit number because that's for the entire winter when I did a whole bunch of experiments. And towards the end, we'd optimize the system a lot. I think that if I did the whole experiment over again, I could get it down to, like, I cut the bill by 95%. So, wow, that's some serious uh, reduction there. And the thing, the thing that's bizarre is that I can't seem to get people to believe it, even though the information is already in their head. Right, and I saw your TED Talk, too. You go into a lot more detail and explain how this works with visual aids and stuff. So for anybody who's looking for more clarity on this issue, you can search for Paul Wheaton and TED Talk, and you'll come up with everything he's talking about here. So you asked me about the experiments that I've done that are the most important. And I've done, my life is all about experimentation. I've done so many experiments. And right now I kind of feel like if I could, if, if I'm allowed like one idea to convey to all people in the world in order to solve the world's problems. I think I would go with that one because that would have the most positive impact 
globally. I mean, I've got experiments with rocket mass heaters, with the Wafatis, with uh, all kinds of horticultural endeavors, like the culture stuff, and uh, replacing irrigation with permaculture, uh, all kinds. I mean, the, the list is, is massive and long, and I've got so much to say on so many different topics. But you asked me which one was the most important, and it's, it's that one. And it's kind of like, it's also really profound. The, the, the secondary experiment, which is the unfortunate experiment, it's all so profound how people will know it's true, but they just can't let it into their head. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I don't know what more you could do with all the different material that you've published out there to help to convey exactly how simple this kind of stuff is to implement, especially in a country like the United States. Um, but hey, you know, maybe some more people listening to this will, will pick up on the information and, and start to implement it themselves. I hope that someday somebody famous will, will carry it, or maybe somebody can just have a way of presenting it that, you know, works its way into brains better than what I've presented today. Hey, we'll throw down the gauntlet and see if somebody can pick that up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're moving on. You mentioned a ton of other experiments that you've been working on other than just the, the heating. How have those experiments been received by the permaculture and natural building communities? I know you just talked about that one that, that hasn't really been picked up. Have there been others that have been really well adopted? I think culture has probably been the one that's been the most adopted. And, and it's like, and culture is not my creation or invention. Um, uh, it is something that I think I might be the most famous for culture in like, <clears throat> like I, when I went to write an article about culture on the internet, um, there was nothing on the internet about culture zero. And so I wrote the first Google Culture article on the internet, um, but I, by no means did I, I, want, I don't want anybody to start thinking that I invented it or anything like that. No, it's nothing like that. I heard about it, and I did a lot of experimenting with it, and I've evolved my theories, and, and I've projected those, and now I see a lot of stuff on the internet about Google Culture only... <laughs> Only I'm kind of feeling a lot like, uh, no, you're doing it wrong. No, <laughs> no, way. Um, so that's that's probably the thing where I've put a lot of work into that has gotten the most traction with permaculture people. Um, with natural builders, um, I think again, rocket mass heaters is something that I did not invent. That's the work of Yonto Evans. I've done some of the newer innovation behind it. So I think pebble-style rocket mass heaters are my creation. And there's a couple of variations of rocket mass heaters that are mine. But I think, I think my, my work in that area is more about trying to get the word out there. I, I, I'm pretty sure I put up the very first video on YouTube about it. Um, I think I wrote the first article on the internet about it, uh, stuff like that. Uh, in the world of natural building, that's rocket mass heaters are, you know, my work within the world of rocket mass heaters is probably what's gotten the most traction within the world of natural builders. Sure. Um, I think I, I started to learn about Hugo culture and, and rocket mass heaters from some of your articles, but I did later work with uh, Yanto directly. And funny enough, now that I'm here in Guatemala, 
one of his original inventions, like back in the 70s for stoves, the Lorena stoves, are actually pretty widely used in the Commodores and the, the, the markets around here. So I'm actually, I'm doing some uh, advanced work on rocket stoves and rocket ovens recently. And it's kind of interesting to be spreading some more stove information from the guy who was here like 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> Pretty full circle now, in that way. So yeah. quick, before we move on, can you go over very briefly what a rocket stove is and what a hugel culture bed is for those who don't already know? Okay, so hugel culture is basically soil on wood. Um, if you build a pile tall enough, which is generally about six or seven feet tall, then you don't have to irrigate it anymore. And some people are kind of like, oh, well, what will the neighbors think? And so they build something only two or three feet tall. <coughs> um, uh, I, could, I could fill probably six hours of discussion about culture and the finer points. But in general, soil on wood in a mound, and uh, you plant all your favorite gardening plants on there. Um, you then have, like, uh, less... Uh, you could reduce your irrigation worries to zero. Then there comes all this stuff about, like, you don't have to worry so much about fertilizer or pest control or um, all these other things you're gardening. In fact, with the, the permaculture promise that comes with culture is that if you do a really good job, you won't have to do anything but harvest. Mm. So there's a caught on. Rocket stoves and rocket mass heaters, I, I want to make it really clear that there's a differentiation. And it has to do with how some people, I, we, we, I said something one time and somebody made it into a lovely graphic. I said uh, somebody was like choosing to not understand the difference between a rocket stove and a rocket mass heater. They were intentionally swapping the terms to prove that neither worked because they refused to glom onto the terms. Mm. They're kind of like, well, you know, you're going to have all this smoke. With, uh, you, you, you say you're going to heat your home with one-tenth the wood, but then you have all the smoke in your house. <laughs> no. You're thinking of trying to use a cook stove that's intended for outdoor use inside your home. I'm trying to talk about using a rock So Anyway, I said this thing about, okay, you know what? You have to be this smart to ride this ride. <laughs> you don't get to ride. There's a okay? common denominator. This is, this is for other people, not you. And, and there's this great graphic that this guy made where it's got me in a lab coat, and at the top of the chart, of course, is Albert Einstein. At the bottom of the chart is a goldfish, and I'm holding my hand up to about 25% about of the way up the chart. You must be this smart <laughs> to ride this ride. Um. So a rocket stove, um, I mean, when, when an American talks about a rocket stove, you're talking about a camping stove, a contraption that will cook your food with just a few twigs. Um, it will generate smoke. It, it just directs the heat very efficiently, and it's much better than an open fire or something like that. I mean, you use a lot, lot less fuel. You don't have to pack up. Um, like white, they used to use white gas to, to pack it up with you, and you'd have this little teeny tiny cook stove that would run on the white gas. Um, and instead, you could just use twigs that are lying around, and it will it will work extremely well. But it it's for outdoor use. Now, where you're at in Guatemala, 
and throughout Africa, South America, and a lot of third world nations, other parts of Asia, then some people, it's like it's their culture to have basically an open fire inside their house, and it's all smoky inside. That's their thing. That's what they're into. In fact, Ianto has a wonderful story about his first time, I believe it was in Africa, and he thought he was saving the world, and he brought them solar ovens. He came back three months later, and all the solar ovens were gone, but everybody sported some really shiny jewelry. <laughs> and he says it wasn't a cultural fit. They burn wood in their home to cook. That's what they do. Now, then he brings in the rocket stove, and, and they start cooking with that. Well, it, it cooks their food with one-tenth the wood, and there's hardly any smoke inside the house. So once one place in a village has this, then, then what happened was is that uh, the woman next door will, will go to her guy and say, Hey, you're going to get me one of those. Yeah, yeah, that's how it catches on. So as opposed to a rocket mass heater where Yonto comes back to the United States and he's kind of like, these wars that fight are over energy. All this pollution that's all over the place is tied to energy. And the number one energy thing in the United States, and here's another thing that people just can't seem to understand, the number one energy consumer is heat, home heat. Number one. In fact, if you switch from electric heat to a rocket mass heater, that reduces your carbon footprint as much as parking seven cars. So everybody's all focused on cars. And, you know, there's a, there is. There's a lot of work to be done in there. There's a lot. And it's like, oh, my carbon footprint, I'm going to get a Tesla. And it's like, you could do seven times more than that if you just switch from electric heat to a rocket mass heater. Right, a rocket mass heater. First of all, all the exhaust is routed outside. <laughs> you don't just build a fire in the middle of your living room. Something like that. It's, it's got the same innards of a rocket stove. This is Ianto's invention. He took rocket stove technology and he made something that was extremely cheap and easy to make. It routed all the exhaust outside, so it's good for Americans. Um, and you heat your heat your home with one tenth the wood of a stove. And you would think that by burning one tenth of the wood, you would have one tenth of the smoke, but it's actually closer to one one hundred, one one thousandth of the smoke. Those are some statistics people can get on board with. So now I'm in Montana. We've had snow on the ground for the last month, maybe more than a month, without a day off. <laughs> it's just, it's been cold. We've gotten below zero. Um, and I think we're going to finish up the winter having heated this place with only half a quart of wood. And it's like, uh, uh, so then this same place with a conventional wood stove would be burning six quarts of wood. 
Hey, hang on one second. We've got the dogs going crazy over here. I'll be right back with you. There's the uh, the challenge of doing a podcast when there are nine dogs on the property. <laughs> it's it's no small amount. Anyway, um, so my next question then was: I know that one of the biggest innovations in the reduction on heating costs and energy has been the home rocket mass heater, like you talked about. And you've actually got an entire DVD series on how to build them. Um, so you've talked about the statistics and how it can actually, you know, reduce your heat bill, cut down on the amount of energy that you use, generally good for the environment. What sort of materials do you need? And is this something that's approachable for the layperson to make themselves? Well, we're trying to make it better and better and better every passing year for people to do it. So we, we kind of came up with this term we call it the DIY level. So how much DIY skill do you need to have to build a rocket mass heater? And we are, with each year, we're finding ways to reduce that more and more. Um, a, a big thing we're doing now is we're pushing, uh, like one of the DVDs uh, from the new uh, DVD set is uh, all about shippable cores. And so we're trying to encourage people to start businesses of building shippable cores and, and then shipping them to people who want to build a rocket mass heater because if, with a shippable core, the rest of it becomes really, really simple, really easy. Sure. Um, it's the core that's, that's challenging. Um, uh, through the DVD set, I mean, we explore a lot of different rocket mass heaters built in a lot of different ways. Um, we've got like the, the, the basic, the plain basic simple ways. We've got uh, stuff that uses some new materials that have been making rocket mass heaters rocketier and, and cleaner. Um, there's, there's people that, out there that have built a rocket mass heater using just 20 bucks of, and scrounged parts. And then there's people that want to go first class all the way and they build some magnificent, beautiful thing for like $2,000. Um, so the answer to your question... There's a lot of opportunity to scale it up is what you're talking about. Um, I, I guess it's going to depend. I mean, what we want to do is show people a lot of the different things that have been done. And then people choose for themselves which path is best for their situation. Okay. So they have some um, options to work with. I think that the most popular route is to build a Cobb-style rocket mass heater. So this is where you're going to use clay, sand, and sometimes straw for most of the structure. And uh, uh, I don't know about – I mean, so many different – I've been to so many different properties where – some people have clay, some people have sand, some people don't have either. I happen to be in a place where I have both for free. All I want, oodles of it, mountains of it, literally. Rocky mountains, full of it. Um, and uh, I, could, I could build hundreds of cob homes and thousands of rocket mass heaters with the, the, the clay and sand that I have at no cost. Um, but like Ianto, he's got clay, but he doesn't have sand. Yeah, we've had to import it there when I've worked there in the past. Yeah, dump truck comes, drops yeah. off sand, and then, and then you, Oliver, are set up with a wheelbarrow, <laughs> and you go up and down that little path like forty times with wheelbarrow loads of sand. 
Well, I'll tell you what I was doing earlier today. I'm, I'm building a rocket oven for a client, one of the neighbors here in Guatemala, and they have a really small property. They don't really have a place where you can really dig. And so we've been hauling bags of both clay and sand strapped uh, with lassos on our heads and the, the bags on our back and hiking them up the mountain. So that's the other option. <laughs> and I think you're going to lose a lot of your eco points once you start doing that. As long as it's people, we're not burning a lot of fuel. And it's not that long of a walk, but it is quite a bit uphill, and it's on a road that um, machines can't get to. Luckily, all the sand comes from the nearby uh, riverbed, which is replenished every year because we're in the mountains and rocks okay. and sand just fall down. And clay soil is also close by. But when you're walking it, it does feel a little bit further. <laughs> <laughs> um. <clears throat> I yeah I I think that you end up with something when when you pack stuff in like that and you make anything whatever it is that you're making then it ends up being more beautiful because clearly you you kind of look around like where did they get these materials did they pack that in here yeah. then it it does have more value but on the other hand when you're trying to talk to somebody about like yeah, there's a guy that built one for 20 bucks. Then, then it's kind of like uh, people are quick to dismiss the idea if they're thinking that they're going to, like the only way to do it is is that they're going to have to, you know, get a big packet of sand and somehow strap it to their forehead to carry it up a mountainside, <laughs> <coughs> which seems to come up. You, you don't live on a mountain. Yeah, but I heard the thing. The guy was packing it up. A strap on his head. Like, oh boy. It's true. People don't take so many circumstances into account when they see these really low prices from certain projects and they're like, oh, well, certainly everything that I'm doing is exactly the same as that project. It has to cost the same amount. I, variables, variables, variables. That, yeah. I can't say that stuff enough. I, I've seen so many straw bale houses built where the straw came from 1500 miles away oh yeah semi truck delivered it yeah and it's like okay so you're you know maybe you should have done something that's it's like um i uh art ludwig has that article can a four thousand square foot home be green and my response to that was is like yeah you got a dozen people living in it and then I actually recorded a podcast with Art where we kind of, and he was like, oh, he still thinks it, it won't be green. And, and then on top of that, you know, a lot of people are like, my house is green. And it's like they've kind of cheated in so many different ways. Yeah. I think a lot of it is, is that you build a home with the materials that you have either on site or really close by. Yeah. So a straw bale home makes great sense if you're out in a big prairie where there's a lot of grasses growing. Then straw bales a smart thing there. Um, but if you're if, if if you're hundreds of miles away from the nearest straw field, then it's kind of like uh, uh, I think that's not going to be a, a, a an optimal fit. Sure, but one of the things you have to keep in mind is like depending on the climate. Thermal mass is going to offer a whole lot more problems, and you know maybe you're going to lose all the eco points for having um, 
the materials come from straight up on site when you're trying to heat it in a really cold climate and that thermal mass is just not keeping anything out. So you got to balance both sides in, in any of these projects. I know exactly what you're talking about, but there are always other aspects to consider. There are. Oh, there are. There are. Which is why my job is always fun, because I help uh, coach people through these decisions for both their gardens and their buildings. And no two sites are the same, so um, I never get bored. <laughs> well, I think one thing is, is that if you've got something that's a strong success in an area, then the neighbors oftentimes will rubber stamp that. Sure. They'll, they'll try to build something that's like almost exactly the same. And so you've got to be careful about what you create because next thing you know, you've got, you know, 15 other people that are having all this, this straw bale stuff imported. Sure. You know, and so it's... Well, especially the way these online communities work. Somebody comes up with a new idea that worked really well for where they are and everybody tries to implement it wherever they happen to be. Again, not taking into consideration why it worked in that place and what might be a problem where they are. And they're going to learn. Yeah. I, I like how in and it Robert, fills your forums. What's that? And it fills your forums, the results of all this. Well, <clears throat> yes, it does fill the forums, and our forums are, are packed. Yeah. And I, I think that we've done a really good job of qualifying a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and we encourage people to, to point out all of the little flaws and stuff and to and to question things. Um, however, you know, question it respectfully. Sure. Uh, so we've got, we've got, you know, quite a bit of rules, but I think that uh, you look at most of these projects and you're going to find a lot of discussion back and forth on these very topics where it's going to be kind of like, okay, well, why did you choose to use a straw bale when you're so far away from where straw bales come from? Yeah. You know, and, and uh, I think people are pretty good at, at answering those questions and, and, we're, I mean, there's a lot of amazing projects that you can see. And the fun thing is there's no right answer. There's, you know, a lot of it is personal, and a lot of it is based on what has worked for other people, what, you know, needs to be taken account for your site, and uh, it really keeps for live discussions on there. Well, and things are changing, too. All the time. And, and it's the change that I'm the most interested in um, to, to see what we're coming up with next. So, so many people are really married to the stuff that was figured out 30 years ago. And it's like, we've come so far since then. Oh, I have so many stories about that. <laughs> yeah. Sure you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, I think the Earthship might, you know, I, 30 years ago, I was so in love with the Earthship. My Earthship book was so tattered. Yeah. And when the guy said... You know what? Because somebody asked the question, like, well, what if a spring pops up in the middle of my Earthship? And I thought, ooh, that's a tough one. And the guy's answer was so awesome. It's like, now you have a water feature right in your home. <laughs> I, I was kind of thinking, like, yeah, you could totally make that work. That would be cool. Now, <clears throat> after the coolness in my head wore off, the next problem that comes up years later, I figured out that, it brings another kind of coolness. The water, the temperature of that water is going to be 45 degrees. That's going to be cooling the inside of your house a lot. Yeah, how can you route that cooling to be effective in other spaces? How, how can you make that cooling work for you in the wintertime? 
that's that's a tough one. Sure. But okay, and and now here we are, thirty years later, and for every person that is in love with it, in love with the idea of building an Earthship, um, there's um, I don't know, I'm doing the numbers all wrong. For every person who's actually built an Earthship, there's probably a hundred people that are in love with the idea of it. For every person that's probably built an Earthship and likes it, there's probably at least one person who's built one and has decided, no, thank you. I, I think that Earthships bring us so, so much um, as ideas, but I, th I think that they're not working out as well as the, the dreamers would like them to work out. I've heard that from a lot of people, and I used to work in a community right next to the original Earthship community in Taos, New Mexico. Um, there were a lot of burnouts from that community who had gone to other types of buildings. And obviously that doesn't mean, you know, scrap the idea, throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's tons of great innovations that came out of that. But I completely yeah. agree with you. There, we, there have been a lot of new innovations since then as well that we can compound on, that we can move past and, and even improve on those originals. I agree. I agree. All right. What was, I can't remember what the question was. Did I answer it? I think you did. I think you might have answered some other ones accidentally. So we're doing really good. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the topic of the forums at, at permies.com, they've undeniably become the biggest single discussion ground for all things pertaining to regenerative and sustainable living. Why do you think it's so important to foster these forums and to give people space to contribute ideas and their own experiments? I, I actually didn't think the forums would get to be this big. Um, but what I, what I did do is that there, I went out to forums to try and, and find discussion on the things that I wanted to talk about. And I really couldn't get traction anywhere I'd go someplace and it would turn political or I'd go some other place. And then they were like, if you're not using Roundup, you're not farming. Sure. Um, and, and there was all kinds of stuff that didn't work. Uh, one of them, it was like Americans are all stupid. So, you know, piss off. Um, so I, I finally ended up thinking like, okay, I, I just want to talk about this stuff. So I created my own forums and so that I could talk about the things I want to talk about the way that I want to talk about them. And I kind of feel like it's, it's one place on the internet. It's not the place. It's one place. And um, so a lot of people are very angry. They're, they're like, oh, you won't let me talk about how I hate people that are not vegans. Or you won't let me hate on that other group. Or you, you won't, you know, uh, uh, censorship. And I want to say censorship is my life. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to censor anything I don't like. Um, and, and so mysteriously it's going to be this massive site. And I think we've stumbled onto a recipe that works for a lot of people. Like there's a lot of people out there that want to talk about the things that I want to talk about the way I want to talk about it. So it's, it's just gotten huge. Um, and, and so now I get people telling me that I have to let them post their hate speech because I have a responsibility since it's grown to be the largest community. And it's like, no, I still don't, I'm still not going to do that. I'm going to be selfish and weird and, whatever 
Um, so now it's it's huge, and we have I think like 150 forums, um, something like that. I know that they topics. It's just in the last couple of days. What? Is it all with different topics? People just uh, open up a, a topic whenever they've got questions or something that they want to post. Is that how that works? I'm not sure, but I think we might be ha we might have almost 500,000 threads, and so each thread would be a topic. Oh, okay. And they're categorized into about 150 different forums, and so one forum might have a thousand threads in it. Um, so we've got a forum that's uh, just about rocket stoves, and another forum that's just about rocket mass heaters, and another forum that's about uh, wood burning stoves. So, like for people that are using more conventional wood stoves. Yeah. And I've got a lot of those. There's a lot of people with some really passionate ideas on all of that stuff. It, it's always fun. Oh, yeah. we've In the world of rocket mass heaters, uh, I'm a powerful advocate against using metal inside the wood feed, the um, uh, burn tunnel, and the riser. And there's a group of people that are very adamant that it's totally cool to do that. And so they, they do that. So... I allow it to be posted on my site, even though I don't care for it. And I, I do believe that we are seeing a lot of innovation every year in the world of rocket mass heaters. Well, good, because I've got some new ideas about what I'm doing with ovens here. I'm really interested to, to hear your, your feedback on that sometime soon. I'll have to send you a link. Okay. I want to say use a J-tube. Oh, way ahead of you. J-tube. Yeah. Done. Okay. Cool. That most, gravity most feed, rocket, man, you can't beat it. You can't beat that gravity feed. The the gravity feed is a, is such a smart way to go in so many ways. Um, and and there's people there's arguments for the L tube and the J tube, and now there's batch box out there. Yeah, and I'm, I've used both. I really have, um, and I'm with you on the J tube thing. I you know, batch box always ends up that they don't put the damn door on it. <laughs> and, and then you've got to figure out the door. It's like, oh, I made you a batch box system here. It's like, it's a beautiful system, so much better than a JT. Oh, look at the time. I got to go home. Bye now. Good luck with that. <laughs> Half-baked idea, though. It's, it's the door that's the issue. It's like, if you don't design the door in from the very beginning, the whole thing is a festering turd. And, and it sucks. And it doesn't work the way it needs to work. It's a mess. Uh, but then a J-tube, it's like, you, when, it, when it comes time to put the door on, it's like, oh, there you put uh, two fire bricks right there, and you're done. Ah, it took about, what, uh, seven seconds to put the door on that. Yeah, ah. that's a little lot easier, too. Um, so I've seen a lot of people doing it. So, so rocket ovens and indoor wood cook stoves are are the the, the 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 I want to say like orange is the new black or something like but this it, it, indoor wood cook stoves the rocket technology is the fashion for 2017. It's like we're seeing so many designs and so many really beautiful ones. <coughs> we have three of them here now that are just amazing, and each by a different artist. Um and uh, but um. In fact, I think two of them are actually batch box systems, but they built the door 
from the very beginning. And, uh, and of course, we've got all kinds of welding gear, and the people who built them, you know, had expertise in welding. Uh, and a lot of people, they don't have that expertise. And so right. then it's like the, the J-tube is really the way to go. Um, For ease of use, yeah, I agree. Yeah, the, the Matchbox has some great perks, but that door thing, it, it's, you would think, oh, it's so simple. I mean, we can all imagine a door. It's so easy. There's nothing to it. But you're trying to, to get steel to meet masonry. And by the way, you have to design it in such a way that the fire doesn't melt the steel. Because now, you asked earlier about what is a rocket mass heater. And the big difference between a conventional wood stove and a rocket mass heater is that with a conventional wood stove, you've got a fire in a metal box, and you're trying to get the heat into the room just as fast as you can. So the heat from the fire goes into the room, and then whatever's left goes up the chimney. With a rocket mass heater, we don't lit the heat into the room in the beginning. We want, we put it, we burn the fire in an insulated space. So that way it gets hotter, 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 and we get to a temperature that is far hotter than what you could ever possibly have in a conventional wood stove. This burns all the creosote and all the smoke, so you get a much cleaner burn. Um, and, and then plus, now it's moving in a strong direction. And then we harvest the heat from it. So that's that's the big difference. Yeah, that's so it. Right that's the key stuff. Trying to do something with steel, and it's near where it's supposed to get hot. The temperatures we're shooting for are like three thousand degrees or so, and steel is liquid at twenty six hundred. So then it doesn't hold up so good. Now, if you've got a conventional wood stove, generally your fire tops out at 1,200, 1,300 degrees at a conventional wood stove. So the hottest you'll ever see is you'll start to see the steel glow a little bit. But that's it. That's as hot as it gets. Um, but in a rocket mass heater, we're going we're gonna to melt it. In fact, you can't actually melt that steel out, yeah. There's been a lot of YouTube videos where people are like, you know, rocket mass heaters suck because it all melted. And they're showing video of, like, the inside where it all melted away. And it's like, yeah, don't put metal there. Yeah, don't do not do that. Yeah. That, that could be avoided. No, I've been using um, mostly bricks and um, not just exclusively bricks lately. And uh, a mix of uh, lime and cement that holds up a lot better against heat. Are you using Portland cement? Very small amounts for anything that's yeah. touching the burn tube. So let me just suggest. Portland cement will spall at 600 degrees. Right. So wherever you use Portland cement, make sure it's an area that won't get above 600 degrees. So right next to the Bernie bits, no Portland cement. Right. Um, you can use cob. Cob will be fine because that's just sand and clay. Right. Clay doesn't get high until something like, you know, 4,000 degrees. Um, and sand, uh, you know, generally doesn't liquefy until uh, something past 2000. But when it's with the clay, the clay tends to protect it. Um, we've done a lot of stuff where we've made stuff with a mixture of clay and perlite. And perlite is a type of puffed rock. And uh, it will liquefy, I believe, at um, 
oh man, I think it puffs at 1400 and it melts at 2400. It becomes liquid at 2400. Well, we've had a lot of systems where we put that in there and we'll pull out gobs of perlite glass uh, after a burn a couple weeks later. Oh, wow. And, and so what we've figured out is happening is, is that where the hot area is, that the perlite there melts, but then the clay will protect the perlite that's like further away. Interesting. So, yeah. It's so, but I'm I'm even moving away from the use of of perlite in my systems, other than in an area where it won't get very hot. Um, but you know, for the cores, I'm not using it now for brick. You got to be careful. Um, I mean, if you can get a brick that is definitely a clay brick, right? Then that's fine. And then of it's course, fire brick, actual fire brick is fine. But most brick today is actually a product of Portland cement. And you've got to keep in mind that, you know, hey, we're all eco-conscious. Portland cement has a massive carbon footprint. I think of all the industrialized stuff of everything been caused, I believe one-third of that carbon footprint is the manufacture of Portland cement. Wow, that's quite a statistic. I don't know where I've, I've heard a different statistic, but it's up there for sure. Right. I mean, the carbon footprint is more than just what humans create. Definitely. But still, of what humans have created, my the last statistic I saw on it was one-third is the manufacture of Portland cement. Well, that's always worth keeping in mind when you're doing build projects of any kind. Even a little bit of cement is really going to increase the footprint of whatever it is you're making. Now, on the other hand, if you're going to build a rocket mass heater with a little bit of Portland cement, um, it will probably... You can be forgiven for that, for the energy savings. and Well, you're going to reverse carbon footprint so much with it that um, it's going to uh, more... It's probably going to displace that, that carbon footprint in the first week. Yeah. Use. Yeah. Yep, there's all those variables. <laughs> yeah. And that's what builds your forums. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. And well, we've got well, a lot we, of people that are watching all, make sure that everybody's dotted the I's and crossed the T's on all the details of everything. That's right. He's censoring all of you. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, if, if you're going to try and build something, like, like when people try to build a Cobb house in Montana, then you know you'll have people in the forums that'll say like, "Dude, you need something that insulates. <laughs> You're going to be so cold." Stuff like that. Sure. And it's it's all yeah. You've got to take into account everything that they're planning on doing, how they're planning on overcoming some of the obstacles that would, you know, take out someone else's project if they hadn't considered it. It goes on and on. What's next? Oh, okay. So I've always wanted to ask you this because I know, like me, you're a big fan of Sepp Holzer's work. Uh, and for anybody who hasn't heard of Sepp Holzer, you need to get onto YouTube right away. He has a fantastic documentary called The Rebel Gar Gardener. Um, he's a really innovative farmer from Austria. And um, there's a ton you can learn about. He's got some great books out there as well. 
what are some of the most influential aspects from his teachings and his philosophies about farming that have affected your work? <laughs> the, the first time I met Seb, I, I tried to share with him some of my ideas and, and then he, he yelled out, catastrophe. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that's the only English word he knows, uh, which, because the German word is katastrophen, uh, because I've heard him say that too. <laughs> but uh, the funny thing is, is that I showed him my ideas. He said catastrophe. And then later, when his book comes out in English, there's my ideas, which oh, no. are different than what he used to do. So I, I kind of, what are the greatest influences that Sepp has had? I mean, oh, geez, that guy is amazing because he did it. And, and it's like so often you get to somebody and they say, nobody can make money in permaculture. And then you point at Sepp Holzer. What about that guy? He's probably bringing in like, Four million a year. That doesn't. Well, you think four million dollars a year is like no money? Is that what you just said? Yeah. Oh, he's in Austria. Really? In the top of the mountains, too. That's that's the best you got is because he's not in the United States. That it's impossible for anybody in the United States to make money with permaculture. The key is is that <coughs> this guy's been doing permaculture for so long, and he's been doing it. You know, whole hog. He's got like seventy ponds, and and he's got food just just popping out of the ground everywhere. And and he finally got to the point like he's oh the other thing is is he's paid more agricultural fines than any other farmer in all of Europe. And and it's like uh, so basically the government is like just riding this guy's ass and. And making him pay all these fines, but he's like, yeah, not a problem. I'll pay that. Because he's making so much coin. And, and they keep making laws specifically to shut him down. So he finally gave up on selling seeds, and then he stopped selling food. But here's, here's what he does that's, that's just astounding. And it's kind of like, oh, man, that is is like three levels up from what any permaculture person can even imagine doing. Because every all these permaculture people are kind of like, and then I'm going to go into poverty for life with a CSA, and I'll have a 100 clients that I'll sell food to. And it's like they kind of got this whole plan that's, that's just doomed to poverty. And this guy has moved so many levels beyond anything like a CSA <laughs> that now people pay 95 euros just to walk onto his land and he's got like 100 people per day shelling out 95 euros. That adds up to like over a million dollars a year right there. And the schedule is like booked. It's packed. And, and it's like, so then the people come onto his land and they get a tour, and um, and then can you believe they bring all these empty backpacks, and they, they and then they leave. I think that they may have stolen some food, and and so then the thing is, is that the government is saying, okay, if you try to sell any food, 
we're going to regulate the hell out of you and tax you and all this stuff. But he's not selling any food. I mean, he's growing a lot of food and feeding a lot of people. But it's not, he's not selling it. These people are just, you know, walking on for a tour. And then it's like, okay, you guys show yourselves out. Now, bye. I'm going to go into the house. I won't be looking at what you're stealing. See ya. <laughs> yeah, that guy is so inspirational. Yeah. We could do a whole podcast just on what, you know, we've kind of gleaned from, from his videos and from his talks and from his, his books and stuff. So. so whenever somebody says it doesn't work or you can't make money. He's the perfect one to point at. That's, so you asked me what's his greatest achievement? That. Just the fact that we can point at him and say, look at that guy. Huh? He did it. And if, and if you can't imagine how to get there after there's like five awesome videos and like, you know, three amazing books, if, and if you can't, you know, can't figure it out from point A to point B, then it's not Sepp's problem. That's your problem. Right. Now, you stated on your site that your consulting services are not a good fit for everybody because you focus heavily on making a net income in excess of like 200K annually, raising animals, producing more than 90% of your own food and including the help of interns and volunteers. I mean, obviously this is affected by some of the ambitions that this guy has instilled in you and me and a lot of other people. Why are those some of your main priorities? I, I, you know, whenever anybody wants me to come to their property and give them advice, there's, there's two important things. One, you really don't want my advice. It's, it's like, um, all I'm going to do is make you cry. It's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like you need to find somebody who's going to be, is going to say the things that you want to hear. I'm not going to say the things you want to hear. And, and it's like people, people seem to have a hard time understanding a lot of this stuff. <laughs> and it's like when Sep goes to a property, he, the owner will be sitting there saying, but, 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 and he waves them off. He tells them to shut up. He's like, you know, talking through an interpreter, but he just puts his hand like right in their face to tell them to shut up. He doesn't want to hear their drivel. And so he's awesome. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is I've, I've gone on so many different things with Sep, and I've seen him do it so many times. It makes sense. A person that is going to say, oh, I want Sep to come by and tell me magic things, but they really don't want to listen to Sep. What they want is they want Sep to regurgitate their own ideas. And Sep thinks their ideas are stupid. <laughs> no, those ideas you have are, are horrible. <laughs> and, and, it's, and, you know, I don't think I'm at a level that Sep's at. And I get it. I, I listen to the ideas, and then I'm going to have gouts, and I'm going to put them here. And then I'm going to, and it's kind of like their ideas are like so kindergarten. And, and it's like, no, you, it, this could be so much easier than what you're imagining. Uh, one time I went with Sep, and we're looking at this property, 
and this gal had a problem with um, blackberry vines. I don't know. Have you ever been to the Pacific Northwest? Oh, that's that's where I did most of my schooling. Yeah. Yeah. I, people have paid me a lot of money just to remove those. <laughs> so this woman had like, I think about 15 acres. And so what she did was is she just brought in a lot of goats and had them, you know, just wouldn't feed them until they ate all the blackberries. And so she did. She, she got them to wipe them all out. Sep was livid pissed. He's like, so basically you tortured innocent animals instead of, like, finding a more efficient way of doing this. And then, of course, her whole property is, like, devoid of growth of anything except for trees, and all the trees have been girdled by the goats. In the meantime, the goats that are still there are living in kind of like a mud hole. It was, it was a horrible thing. And Sep, Sep just couldn't stop talking about how much he hated this woman and what she's done. <laughs> you know, and so I, all right, so you're, you're looking at the thing where I basically am trying to dissuade people from having me be their consultant. And, um, and now there have been a few people that have like listened to all of my podcasts and watched all of my videos. And so for those people, I don't mind going and, and being a consultant because they know what they're getting into. And they know what I'm going, I'm going to recommend and suggest. And then I don't mind because it's like we speak the same language now. They've, you know, they're familiar with all the things I'm going to say. Um, but so often it's like I get invited somewhere and it's, and I want to say catastrophe. It's like, oh, praise my, Roy, I'm raising my chickens. And it's like they've got them in a little coop and run. There's no greenery in the coop and run, but just outside of the coop and run is a jungle of stuff that the chickens could, like, groove on. And, and the, the ground level inside the coop is, like, four inches taller than outside the coop because it, they built it up with that much chicken shit over, what, eight years or something? Oh, chicken diseases are built up in that pad so these chickens and and then the chickens are in constant shade they don't get any sun so then i start ranting about their chickens and then they're like get off my property i don't need to hear this and it's like i don't i don't need to to have somebody give me a bunch of, oh that's the second thing too i earlier i said one step there's two things one is people really don't want my advice they think that they do, but really they do not. And the second thing is, pay me in advance because you're going to end up kicking me off of your land. <laughs> so for those people who have listened this far, have heard what you've had to say and still think your ideas are good, I'm on board with it. What are some <laughs> of the methods that you coach people through to reach some of these lofty goals that you talked about? I would have to say, like, okay, here, here's an example that's, that's not SEP, it's all me, and it was done entirely over the phone. And so it was a permaculture instructor. The guy's taught a bunch of PDCs, and, and, and he's like, okay, I'm on my way to the client's property, and they have 200 acres, and I got a whole design I put together. And basically what I'm going to encourage them to do on this property is really awful soil, but it's flat. It's a big flat place, but the, the soil is really bad. Like 
weeds struggle to grow there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says, I'm, I want them to um, grow alfalfa and, and sell alfalfa for like, you know, the local people who have horses and feed them alfalfa. And, and I got really angry with this guy who's my friend. I got angry at my friend. This is, you know, <laughs> don't be my friend because I get extra angry at you. <laughs> oh! And, and, so I, and so I asked him some more about the property. Well, there's a, there's a house on the property. And um, the guy that, that is the main guy that lives in the house, who's not the guy that you talk to, because apparently he's a, a yogi or a guru or something like that. He's people all over the world think this guy is super cool. And it's like a 10 bedroom house. And there's only like two people living in the house. And so, you know, the, the, the permaculture instructor guy is going to talk to the other person and show the plans and stuff. The, the guru yogi guy is like um, meditating or something. And, and so the thing I said was, is like, okay, Here's what I want you to do, is to take an acre, load it up with berms and hugelkultur, and, you know, do a food forest, and polycultures, and grow food, grow lots and lots of food without irrigation. And then next year, take another acre and do that again. And each year, prep another acre like this. The next thing to do is start renting out the rooms. And, and so then you'll rent them out cheap in the beginning, but there's people that are going to come to this far, far away place out in the middle of nowhere where the soil is terrible, and they're going to want to bond with this guy. And so then they'll rent the room for a certain period of time. And then rather than trying to sell the food that you're growing, which, by the way, enters you into a whole bunch of political nightmares stuff with trying to sell food, Instead, you just, you know, have somebody that's there that cooks food for whoever it is that happens to come by. That's part of the, the thing for renting this room. And so um, I, the thing I suggested was is that you feed the people who come to see the yogi guy and, and that that's your business model. And um, I, anyway, I think... I think that in time, as the years pass, you'll get more and more money per night, per room, um, and you'll end up with far more than you could ever get selling hay or trying to sell this food directly. I also think that the food that people would eat there, like they'll come to visit with this guy, and they might leave feeling better because I believe that there's a lot of powerful healing properties in polyculture food that is not irrigated. I, I think that that's the best food in the world for people. Why so is then, that? Well, um, consider for a moment the carrot. And so currently you go and you buy your organic carrots that were grown in a monocrop field. They're organic. And then somebody put manure on the field or possibly some minerals and stuff that are the things that make carrots, you know, bright and look good and sellable. And um, now each carrot plant, as it grows, it has exudates. And 
Um, at the same time, the carrot roots go out, and then they find things in the soil that they bring in. Carrots were not designed to grow in a monocrop. Carrots were designed to grow in a polyculture. And so then out there, when they're uh, with a bunch of other plants, there's 50 other plants, and there's mycelium in an aged soil, then the, the, the carrots are getting a lot of the root exudates and a lot of the other exudates, all the exudates from all the other plants, and that's its nutrition base. And a lot of these things are things that we haven't even figured out how to measure yet or that they even, like, well, we haven't even quantified or qualified them yet. Then that carrot, that grew up with 50 other plants is getting the nutrition that it needs according to nature's design as opposed to a field of monocrop where the only thing available to it is carrot exudates from its neighbors which it doesn't want because it's exuding the same thing but whatever it is that somebody put into the soil because they read somewhere that that was good for carrots so if I can understand you right, if I get narrow this down to a soundbite, it sounds like you're saying it takes a village to raise a carrot. <laughs> it takes diversity. Right. Now, some grains are designed to grow in a monocrop, but even their monocrops aren't very monocroppy. I mean, they're still going to have a lot of other species growing in between them. And, and typically, they're still going to be growing on an aged soil that has mycelium. And that soil is going to have soil structure. Whereas the monocrop, especially with organic, I mean, with organic systems, they till three times more often than with conventional systems. And so then they're going to, every time you till the soil, you lose 30% of your organic matter. So you basically are growing these carrots in something that's closer to cement than soil. And because it's been tilled so much, there hasn't been a chance for very much mycelium to get started in the soil. So it's, it's like this nearly sterile soil. And take a look, a lot of people eat, they're, they're like eating baby spinach, which is like the flavorless variety of spinach. And it's like, how did that get that way? Well, it was grown in a hydroponic system. It, it had, the, the spinach had water and whatever nutrients they put into the system. So it's sure it's labeled as organic, but it's like, you know, it's... It only tells part of the story. It's, the, the key is it's, it's not a polyculture. Right. And, and uh, it's, it's not even soil, and it's still a monocrop, and it's oftentimes a really artificial system. And, and so then, but, you know, people buy that and eat it. It's like it says organic on it and spinach. Hey, Popeye grooved on spinach. Surely it's got to be good for you. No, I'm right there with you. There's a big gap between, um, I guess, the ideals that a lot of people believe come along with that label organic and what the actual practice is and how, how similar or sometimes even worse from conventional agriculture, industrial agriculture, that it can be just behind a different label. Well, the good thing about organic is that it's at least a half-assed effort to have less toxins in it. Hey, and I'm but all then, four steps in the right direction. 
but then the next, you know, when you go 10 levels up from that, then, you know, you, you start talking about permaculture and polyculture. Now we're adding the nutrition back into that food because we're, we're emulating nature as opposed to, you know, this very artificial way of growing food. That's very well said. I appreciate that. Now, since you have your finger on the pulse of this permaculture and natural building wor world between the experiments that you're doing and everything on the forums, do you have any predictions for innovations or discoveries that are going to start to shape the future of new practices? Wow. Wow. Predictions about the future. Come on. Tell me what's, what's the next big thing. I, I mean, I, I want to fill this space with what my fantasies are as opposed to my Nostradamus stuff. Well, give me both then. Let's hear, let's hear the optimistic version and then okay. what you think going to happen. I, I tell you, my crystal ball has a big crack in it, so it's no good. Um, <laughs> but I, I believe, in fact, here at my place, we've been here three years, and I like to think that by the time we get to 10 years, that you can take somebody who has cancer and they're told you have one week left to live, we give up. And I like to think that we will bring that person here and then their cancer will just go away. That is ambitious. I like it. I, and I, because I, I really believe I've got this, I've got a crazy theory. Now, and, you know, you might want to put on your tinfoil hat here. That's good. I know you're good for this stuff. Okay, so here's my crazy theory. I, I think that cancer comes from carcinogens. I, I know it's nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> See, now most people believe that cancer comes from the cancer fairy, this little invisible being that floats around and goes, ding, you get cancer. And, and that's where it comes from. And if somebody, you find out somebody's got cancer and you're saying, they're saying, oh, that's too bad. That's, that's terrible. The fairy got you. That sucks. Whereas, as opposed to the question that I would ask is like, you know, what have you been poisoning yourself with? Um, which I think is fairly accurate. Now, I believe, to expand on that a little bit, I believe that cancer comes from carcinogens that we know of and that we don't yet know about. So while everybody's kind of like, oh, I've been drinking out of this plastic all my life, and now I find out it's got BPA in it. So I threw that out the window where I throw all my garbage, and I got this new plastic thing, and it says right on it, doesn't have the BPA on it. And it's been like, I can't help but think that it's got something worse than BPA in it. And as soon as the government catches on to it, they'll just switch it to something else that the government hasn't, like, investigated yet. And so I kind of got this crazy idea that our world is loaded with toxins and carcinogens and, you know, natural building combined with permaculture techniques, I think that this is going to be the, the end solution. And, and, and when I say I think, I, I guess I should qualify that as, as I fantasize 
I, I'm not really sure where we're going to end up, but, but I do believe that we're going to change the way that people eat food and we're going to change the way that we approach toxicity. And I love the idea that it's kind of like somebody's seriously ill. Maybe it's not even cancer. Maybe it's something else. Unexplained. They can't figure it out. I mean, it was 12 years ago that I was bonkers about permaculture and I realized I had to quit my day job and, and go down the path that I'm on now. And oh, during that period of time, a woman uh, was, was telling me about how her husband has some intestinal disease that the doctors can't figure out, and he's only got six weeks left to live. And for whatever reason, he's never been to Europe, so they decided to go to Europe. He goes to Europe, and his disease mysteriously goes away. For two weeks, it's just gone. He lives large. He eats whatever he wants. Everything is wonderful. And then he comes back to the United States, and he has the disease. So, what is it? What's making that dude sick that isn't over in Europe? I think that this is going to be what a lot of this is about, and I love the idea of building something with natural building <clears throat> that's very, very, very clean, that's very, very, very natural, several orders of magnitude beyond what most people consider natural building, and that the only food is stuff that we've grown in polycultures with permaculture systems, and then if somebody's riddled with some disease, they can come here and I'm going to fantasize that they're disease. I like it. Those are some heavy ambitions, but it's a unique approach, and it's going to take you know a whole lot of more uh, experimentation and innovation, uh, which will keep your Wheaton Labs running for a long time. Well, they do something like this over at Sepp's place right now. People, people are going there that don't understand permaculture or natural building or any of that stuff. They're going there, and they say that he has uh, a, what do they what do you call it the uh, the water of life the 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 the, the, the yeah the well spring of youth. the spring the spring of life or the spring of youth yeah something like that. So there's people from all over the world that are going there just to, to drink the water because wow. they believe that it heals everything. And, you know, it's magical. And, um, I mean, I, 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 Sep, <laughs> Sep's a businessman. He's not going to correct them. He doesn't, I don't think he advertises that at all. That's just entirely well, that here in Montana, <clears throat> a woman had been there and drank the water and she was convinced that it was like this magical water and and she hired Sep to come here to Montana and um, put these water systems into her property. Wow. And, and so she thought, oh, the fountain of youth, that's what it is. That's what it is. 
And and so um, I remember that when Sep was uh, when Sep was done and he had left, and he there's all this big equipment still, all these earth movers and stuff like that still shaping the land. I I remember I found the woman sitting on a pile of mud, and I asked her, you know, so what do you think? And she said, I wanted the fountain of youth. I paid for the fountain of youth. What I got was instant farm. <laughs> and I don't want to be a farmer. <laughs> what did you think was going to happen hiring Seth? Well, yeah, that's what I explained to her. And I said, so let me see Let me see if I can kind of come up with an analogy here. So you've looked at Seth's paintings. And all of his paintings are nudes. And, and it's like, and then people think that, you know, there's a different aesthetic to the, all these nudes. And you even looked at some of the nudes and, and you saw a painting of space. And so then you, had, you hired him to paint a painting for you. And you were very emphatic that what you wanted was something with planets and quasars and, and nebulas and, and stuff like that. So he painted a nude that had all of that in it. <laughs> and you're pissed. And it's like, this is what he does. This is where it comes from. You get, the, you get the fountain of youth. You get the water of life. You get all of that with Instant Farm. Yeah. It sounds like she didn't lose. She just didn't get what she was originally thinking. Right. Exactly. And you know what? That's exactly why I don't want people to hire me as a consultant. Just think about it. She's all dreamy about how Seb's going to come. And she doesn't know what he's going to do, but it's going to be awesome by her standards of what is awesome. But what Sep did is he came and he made something that was awesome by Sep's standards of awesome. So, like, I get to a property and they want me to give advice, and it's like, yeah, but we're going to keep our, we're going to torture our chickens forever. And what we want you to do is stop talking about how to raise chickens a different way. What we want you to do and what we're paying you to do is to tell us how awesome we are with raising chickens. <laughs> and of course, what I'm thinking is you're torturing these poor chickens. They're suffering under your care. Uh, it's that whole thing of like, uh, we must be awesome at raising chickens because most of them haven't died. <laughs> You know, and it's like, that's, that's a terrible metric. That's an awful metric. Yeah, I hear you, man. Well, hey, before I let you go here, can you make sure that everybody knows the best ways to get in contact either with you or with uh, interact with the site? Or uh, I know you've got a DVD set for the rocket mass heaters. So we have eight DVDs about rocket mass heaters, the four old ones, which were just video of a workshop, and then the four new ones that are like a dozen different events all packed into four DVDs. Uh, far more information rich now. And then we've got a three DVD set that's called World Domination Gardening, which is about Earthworks stuff. Um, and then we did the permaculture playing cards, which... It's like everybody buys them by the dozen at Christmas time to put into people's stockings. The, the, the cards were designed so that way 
if you're bonkers about permaculture, but your friends and family think you're nuts, then what you do is you give this to them for Christmas, and we tried to design it so that if they actually open it and look at the cards, then they'll think that you're less nuts. Interesting. We, this, is, this was our mission. I'm not, I've, I've had some people confirm that it worked. Um, that is intriguing. Yeah, we've sold a lot of cards. I can imagine. <laughs> There's a lot of permies that are like, I need my family to think that I'm not nuts anymore. Well, there you go. Those are the permaculture playing cards to bridge the gap between you and your more conservative family members. <laughs> <laughs> There's all of that. We've got the podcast, the YouTube videos, um, articles, and then, of course, the forums have 1.2 million people per month and uh, 22 million page views. So um, a lot of people. And it sounds like I asked the wrong question. I should have asked, how can people avoid your stuff? That seems like a harder job. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like if you search for a lot of permaculture stuff. Yeah. So the there you have it. Like anywhere you look on the web at this point, you're going to, you know, through some web, end up at one of Paul Wheaton's uh, either DVDs, websites, or other materials. So thank you so much for giving me your time today, Paul. It was such a pleasure talking to you. We're going to have to do this again sometime. Ooh, okay. That sounds like fun. Thank you. <laughs> Take care now. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're looking to find any of the information that was listed in this episode, you can find it at AbundantEdge.com under the podcast window. There you can also find a full range of educational articles, as well as services on design, contracting, and consulting. Now one last thing before we go, I would really love it if you would help me make these episodes into a dialogue. The purpose of these is not to be a one-way lecture series, but rather a conversation starter. Something that provokes inspiration and inspires you to get involved. I would love to hear what you think in the comments section on the website. And as much as it would be great to have uh, subscriptions and likes and stuff on social media, I would much prefer if you were to share these face-to-face -face and use it as an excuse to uh, rekindle some personal contact, maybe with someone you haven't talked to in a while, but to get off of the screens and turn these into live conversation starters. Anyway, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>